There's a story told about a congregation in the deep south in the 1950s without a pastor. Through the various networks that churches have, they got the name of a fella who would come and he would preach in view of a call because he was a preacher and a pastor but without a church. They called him, they invited him. And when he agreed to come, they set a date. And when he got to the church, the people saw him for the first time and there was suddenly a problem. The deacons met him on the steps and they told him they did not know he was black. The preacher told them color didn't much matter to him. But as it turns out, it did matter to the church. They refused to even let him attend the service, much less preach with the possibility of becoming the pastor. As the service was starting, the preacher sat down on the steps, put his head in his hands and began to weep, saying, Lord Jesus, they won't even let me in. Now, according to the story, Jesus sat down beside the preacher, put his arm around him and said, don't feel bad, my son. I'm not welcome there either. Now, while the story is fictional, the point is all too real. There are places where Jesus just isn't welcome. Sadly, sometimes Jesus is not even welcome among those who should be the first to welcome him. Now, this isn't anything new. The Old Testament is filled with examples of God not being welcome among the Israelites. They would often tell the prophets to quit talking about God because they just did not want to hear it. Tell us nice things. Tell us smooth things. Quit telling us about the Holy One of Israel, they said. But this isn't even just restricted to the Old Testament. We see it in the New Testament as well. The religious leaders of Jesus' day should have been the first to recognize Him as the Messiah and acknowledge Him and welcome Him into their lives and bring Him into their assemblies. Instead, they repeatedly opposed Him and they declared to Him, over and over, you are not welcome here. But it's not just in the Gospels and with the religious leaders of Jesus' day. One of the most profound pictures of this is found in one of Jesus' letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. The letter ends with a self-satisfied, affluent, wealthy church. Jesus is standing on the outside knocking, inviting them to open the door and let him in. And we often use that verse for evangelism, and, and that is a valid application of the verse. It is not the primary context of the verse. The main point is Jesus is not welcome in his church. And he is on the outside knocking, waiting on his church to welcome him in, to open the door and invite him in. Today we're going to study another example of Jesus not being welcome. As we study this passage, we want to ask ourselves, is Jesus welcome here? And we want to ask it in two ways. We want to ask it on a personal level. Is Jesus welcome in my life? Am I someone who welcomes Jesus and all He is and all He says and all He wants? But then we want to ask it in a corporate way as well. Is Jesus welcome in our church. As I've said many times, well, the order of the questions matters, right? We ask ourselves first and then we ask about the church because, as I've said many times, there is no nebulous entity called the Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. Instead, there is us, we the people, 
We are Northridge Free Will Baptist Church. And whatever our church is, and whatever our church is not, whatever our church does, and whatever our church does not, is because we are or are not those things. Because we do or do not those things. If Jesus is not welcome in our church, it is because Jesus is not welcome in our lives. So those are the questions we want to ask as we look at the passage. Mark 6, verse 1, page 765 in the Pew Bibles. When you find that, I'm going to ask you to stand on the reading of God's Word. Mark 6. Jesus went out from there, and He came to His hometown, and His disciples followed Him. When the Sabbath came, He began to teach in the synagogue. And the many listeners were astonished, saying... Where did this man learn these things? And what is this wisdom that has been given to him? And such miracles as these performed by his hands? Is this not the carpenter? The son of Mary? The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Are his sisters not here with us? And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, A prophet is not dishonored except in his hometown and among his own relatives. And in his own household. And he could not do any miracle there. Except he laid hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. And he was going around the villages teaching. The title of the message is, When Jesus is not welcome. Let's pray. Our Father, we love you today. We praise you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you. The privilege we have to gather today. To study your word. Father, we're looking at a tough passage. And a tough thought. And Lord, it would be easy for us to pass it off. Think about other people who ought to hear it. Because obviously Jesus is welcome here. But all scripture is for all people. And so we must take it and apply it to ourselves first. Help us this morning. To put down any pride that we may have that would keep us from listening and having ears to hear. Help us to be humble. To ask ourselves, is Jesus really welcome in my life? Is Jesus really welcome in our church? And let us find an honest answer. Father, if if the answer is Jesus is not welcome begin to press on that area of our lives. We want Jesus to be welcome in our hearts, in every aspect of our lives, and in our church. We want this to be a place where anyone from any background can come. They would feel welcomed. They would feel loved. And they would be given the time necessary to find Jesus, and that they would find Jesus here. Fill me this morning with your Holy Spirit and give me clarity of thought and clarity of speech. Let me say only what you once said, nothing more, nothing less. Use this time to renew our hearts, renew our minds, transform our lives. Make us ever more like Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now, before we get started, I do want to say, I'm 
thankful for last week. It was great and greatly enjoyable. Um, also, I didn't get to preach last week, so I get double time this week. Now, in quick succession, Jesus has done amazing things. He has calmed a raging storm. He has delivered a man from demon possession. He has healed a woman with a long-term and incurable illness. He has raised a girl from the dead. As a result, his fame has spread like wildfire throughout the region. And everywhere he goes, crowds flock to him. He now goes home to his hometown. Where you would imagine the people would flock to him and be amazed and, and be the first to, to welcome him. But his homecoming isn't what we might imagine. Rather than crowds of people excited to see him, hear him, learn from him and experience his power... Jesus finds he's not really welcome among his own people. They were astonished in verse 2, but not in a good way. They were offended in verse 3. Their response to Jesus dishonored him, according to verse 4. And since Jesus really wasn't welcome, he limited what he did among them. And then Jesus was amazed at them, but again, it was not the good kind of amazed. Their reaction to Jesus caused them to miss out on the power of Jesus. There is much Jesus could have done in them and through them and for them. But because Jesus wasn't welcome among them, they, they missed it all. The lesson for us, when Jesus is not welcome among us, we miss out on what Jesus can do in us, through us, and for us. When Jesus is not welcome among us, we miss out on what Jesus can do in us and through us and for us. There are three ways we see Jesus was not welcome in this passage. First, Jesus is not welcome when we diminish his deity. Notice in verse 2, the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach. And notice they said, where did this man learn these things, this wisdom? They call him in verse 3 the carpenter, the son of Mary, the son of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon. And his brothers and sisters, they're right here with him. As I was studying this, I circled this man. And I noticed it in a way I probably had not noticed it before. This man. Now, I'll give you, they probably did not know full well who Jesus was. Even his disciples who were with him all the time did not know full well who Jesus was until after his resurrection. However, it's obvious from what they do know about him, he is something significant. At the very least, he is a teacher of the law and should be respected. He's likely a prophet in the way he teaches and talks and interacts with people. He's certainly a miracle worker, as even there among this place where he's not welcome, he heals a few people. Perhaps they didn't quite understand he was the Messiah who was God in human flesh. But the use of this man seems to be intentional. It's meant to be a put down. They didn't refer to him as a teacher. They didn't refer to him as a prophet. They didn't refer to him as a miracle worker. They said, this man. Now keep in mind what we've seen in, in Mark chapter 3. His own people have already come to him trying to do an intervention because they thought he was out of his mind. The people had heard things that Jesus had done. But rather than acknowledge these mighty works in any way, they questioned how this man 
could have done these things. They were diminishing and dismissing his deity. Now we have the completed word of God in our day. We have an advantage over these people when it comes to understanding and embracing the deity of Jesus. For example, God's word tells us that it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. For in Him, all the fullness of deity dwells in a bodily form. The word translated as fullness, it means the sum total of all the divine power and attributes. What this means is all the stuff that makes God God was in Jesus. But notice also the word dwell. The word dwell means these attributes, this fullness wasn't in him temporarily. It wasn't something that was added to him. It had always been there. It cannot be removed from there. Jesus is God. His deity is an essential part of who he is. Now, this is important because it's the key point for everything else we're going to talk about today. In just a few minutes, we're going to talk about the words of Jesus. We're going to talk about the works of Jesus. Why do His words matter? Why are Jesus' words authoritative? It's not because He was a good teacher. It's because He's God. Jesus' words have authority because Jesus is God. Why does he get to do the things he does? And and our job is to rejoice in his works. It's because Jesus is God. We accept his works because he is God. If we get the deity of Jesus right, or if we don't get the deity of Jesus right, we will not or we really we cannot get anything else right. If our view of Jesus is anything less than what God's word says, that in him the fullness of deity dwelled in bodily form, Jesus is not welcome in our life. And if our church accepts Jesus as anything less than the one in whom the fullness of deity dwelled in in bodily form, Jesus is not welcome in our church. We must accept And embrace the full deity of Jesus. He is God. He was God. And he will always be God. Do you accept that? And embrace that in your life? Does our church? If not. Jesus is not welcome here. And we will miss out. On what he wants to do. In us. And through us. And for us. Jesus is not welcome when his deity is diminished. But Jesus is also not welcome when we're offended at his words. Notice in verse 3, they took offense at him. Now what does it mean to be offended? In our day, people are offended by everything all the time. To the point that we often ignore people being offended. And, never mind. But what it means by offense here is stronger than what it means in our day. According to the omniscient Google, offended means to be resentful or annoyed, typically as a result of a perceived 
insult. Now, the word translated as offense or offend here, it means to go astray, to fall away, or to cause someone to stumble into sin. You see, these people weren't merely resentful of what Jesus had said. They weren't merely annoyed at what Jesus had said. They were falling away because of what Jesus had said. They determined they could not follow Jesus because, at this point, what he had said. We see in verse 2 that this offense, it begins with his words. Jesus taught in the synagogue and then the people began to be offended. And we aren't told the content of his teaching. So we can only guess about what he said that may have offended them. But my suspicion is it wasn't just the content of his teaching that offended them. It was the authority with which he taught. God's word repeatedly tells us Jesus taught not as the scribes and the Pharisees, but as one who had authority. Now, what that means for us, what that meant then. In their day, when a scribe or a Pharisee would get up to teach, they would read the word of God. They would give an explanation of it. And then they would say, according to Rabbi Hillel and Rabbi Shema, and, and they taught it meant this. And I say they're right. Right? And they, the authority of their teaching was based upon previous rabbis and previous scholars who agreed with what they were saying. That's what gave them authority. But when you look at the Gospels, you'll see Jesus never does that. Jesus says, you have heard it was said, but I said. And His interpretation of the law is given as the authority. He's right and everyone else is wrong. This is how Jesus always taught. Not only did he teach as though he were the authority in what he said and his interpretations of the law, he expected people to respond to him and do what he said. And people are often offended by authority like that. People are often offended by the content that's taught. When we think about things Jesus has said, He taught hard things, many hard things, and he taught them with authority. He he didn't teach any of them as this is a suggestion. You might want to think about doing this. He said, here's what's right. Do it or you're wrong. And that can be offensive. Humans are proud. Humans are arrogant. And if there's one thing we don't want in life, it's for somebody to tell us what to do. Ain't nobody going to tell me what I can or can't do. And yet Jesus comes on the scene, and that is exactly what He does over and over again. And it's not up for question. It's not up for debate. It's not up for, do you like this? Do you think that okay? Does that make you feel good on the inside? He doesn't care. He is God and He has said this is how it is and you must do it or you endanger your very soul in the process. Let me me show you some. Turn to Mark 8. We're just going to stay in the Gospel of Mark for a little bit. Turn to Mark 8, verse 34. Mark 
And he, Jesus, summoned the crowd together with his disciples and he said to them, If anyone, so anyone, wants to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Now, notice the authority of that statement. If anyone, not if the apostles, not if people in this first generation of believers, anyone wants to follow after me. He must. Not he should. It would be a good idea. This is probably a good way to get blessed. He he must deny himself. Take up an instrument of death and let Jesus lead where he's supposed to go. This is what Jesus presents to any of us. As what it means to follow him. This is what we must do. But we say, I don't want to. I mean, I don't don't want to deny myself. I don't want to take up an instrument of death. I want to go where I want to go. Well, that's an option. We can do that. But there are consequences. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. So he's saying, you can save your life. And, and not take up your cross, not deny yourself, and not follow Jesus. However, in the process, you, you lose your life. But if you lose your life for his sake, you save it. Now, he's not talking about physical life, though. He's not saying, if we don't do this, we're going to physically die. We are going to physically die, regardless of whether we deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow Jesus. What is he talking about? He tells us. For what does it benefit the person... If he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul. For what could a person give in exchange for his soul? So when he talks about losing our life, he's talking about losing our soul. So here's what Jesus says. If you want to be his disciple, this is what you've got to do. This is what I've got to do. I must, we must deny ourselves. We must Take up our cross. We must let Him lead and we follow. And if we choose not to do that, we lose our soul in the process. We will go to hell for not following Jesus in this way. That's That can be an offensive kind of language right there. I mean, there, there's no question. This is just, this is this is how it is. You either do this or you forfeit your soul in the process. Now, it's even harder. Because not only are we to live this way, we actually have to teach other people to live this way. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So when other people come to us and they say, what does it mean to follow Jesus? We can't just say, well, you pray a prayer and you live this really nice life and it's all rainbows and bunnies and everything is beautiful. We have to say, you must repent of your sin. You must believe in Jesus. You must deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Him. And if we're ashamed to say that, then on the day of judgment, Jesus will be ashamed of us. And surely we can all agree, being Jesus being ashamed of us on the day of judgment... Is not, we go to heaven, right? 
Surely the judgment which is told, people are told, well done, good and faithful servant. Jesus being ashamed of us doesn't equal we sneak into heaven through the shadows and other people don't see. It means we hear, depart from me. I never knew you. Can you see where this would be offensive? Can you see where the authority behind this teaching could be offensive? When we're offended by these words, Jesus is not welcome in our life. But this isn't the only thing Jesus said. Look at Mark 9 and verse 33. They came to Capernaum. He was in the house and began to question him. What were you discussing on the way? They kept silent for on the way they had discussed with one another which of them was the greatest. Can you... Can you imagine being called on the carpet about Jesus by the, that question? He's up ahead. He's literally walking to the cross. He's explained this to you just a few chapters ago. And while he's up there walking to the cross, you guys are back there. We're back here going, I'm better than you. No, no, I'm better than you. Well, I'm the best. I'm the number one disciple. And Jesus is like, what were y'all talking about? I would feel stupid having to answer that question in front of me. We were kind of saying, which one of us is the greatest? Look at me. And so look at how Jesus responds to it. He sat down. And he called them to him. And if anyone wants to be first, greatest, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Now, all is a little word with big implications. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured by how many servants we have, but how many people we serve. Greatness in the kingdom of God is not measured by the fact that we push ourselves to the front of the line, but by the fact we are willing to be last of all. Not, not a servant to those who serve us. A servant to all. Not a servant to those we like. A servant to all. Not a servant to those we love and love us back. A servant to all. Not last after my wife. Last of all. Man, that's... And again, notice the wording. This is not a suggestion. This is an authoritative command about how it is in the kingdom. Can you see where that, that would be offensive? The authority behind it, the, the content of it. He, he, he makes it worse, though. Look at Mark 10. Hold your finger here, because we're coming back to Mark 9. But Mark 10, verse 42. <laughs> again, this is coming at the heels of... James and John going to Jesus with their mom. Got their mom. Can you imagine? Hey, mom, can you go to Jesus and ask him to do you a favor for us? So his mom, their mom goes to Jesus and is like, hey, Jesus, my babies are pretty special, don't you agree? They would like to be one and two in your kingdom in whichever order you want. And the other disciples are like, they're indignant. But I don't think they're indignant because they asked it. They're like, we didn't even think about asking our mom to do this, right? Because they still want to be first too. And so, and what does Jesus say? Calling to himself, he says to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles domineer over them. And the people in high position exercise authority over them. So that's, that's the world. But it is not that way among you. The kingdom is different again. Whoever wants to become prominent among you shall be your servant. And whoever wants to be first... Among you shall be slave of all. Oh man, he has just 
jacked up the standard from servant to slave. And here's the difference. Servants can choose to serve. Slaves have no choice. Servants can say, I don't want to do that. A slave is commissioned to the will of another to perform their will. And Jesus has just now said, those who want to be great in his kingdom, those who are part of his kingdom, are meant to be the slave of all. Again, all. Man, that's... I mean, can you can you imagine the offense of a day when slavery was like right there? I mean, they, they could literally see slaves. It was not great. And that's the command. Be a slave to everyone. Serve and accomplish their will and, and put yours aside. And then he makes it even harder. For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, but to be served, to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus... Sets the example of what it means to serve and be a slave of all, to put others' needs ahead of his own. And he did it, not in a way that was convenient, not in a way that was easy, not in a way to people who loved him and cared for him. He did it for those who were his enemies, who despised him. And he did it to the point of dying a horrible, brutal death on the cross. And on the cross, Jesus set an example for us to follow. We are to serve others, all others, to the same extent Jesus served us. That's a hard teaching. That is a hard saying. Because I'm going to be honest with you. Just between us, I have a problem with this in my own household. You put all on that. Holy smokes. I don't like people who have 20 items in the 10 item or less line. It gets on my nerves. makes me angry. I, I'm, I'm horrible at this. But that, that's what the, the, the God man said. And he taught it with authority. He taught it as this is the way it is, not as the way it might be or you should think about doing this. This is how it is. Can you see where the authority of this teaching would be offensive? Can you see where the command, the content of this teaching would be offensive? One, one more and we'll move, move on. Mark 9, 43. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life, heaven, maimed, than having two hands and go into hell, into unquenchable fire. And if your foot is causing you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter heaven, life, without a foot, than having two feet and be thrown into hell. And if your eye is causing you to sin, throw it away. Gouge that bad boy out. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God, heaven, with one eye, than having two eyes be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says it's better to go to heaven maimed than it is to go to hell whole. Now, considering church history has exactly zero instances of people cutting off their hands, their feet, and gouging out their eyes. I think it's safe to say this is not meant to be taken literally. Instead, there is a powerful principle being taught here. If there is something in our lives leading us to sin, then we need to get rid of it, no matter how painful it is to get rid of it. It's better to, to lose this thing, whatever it is, than it is to go to hell. Now, the implication of this teaching, and I don't think necessarily just an implication, I think it's the teaching of this teaching, is 
If my hand is causing me to sin and I don't cut it off, I don't enter into life. I think I keep my hand and thus I go to hell. So if there is something in my life that I treasure more than I treasure Jesus and it is leading me into sin and I say I I will not let it go. I will hold on to this, but I'm still going to hold on to Jesus. I fool myself and in the end I've kept this to the point that I get cast into hell where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. And this is anything, a relationship, an activity, a job, a hobby, anything. Anything that leads us to sin, Jesus said, we're to get rid of it so that we don't end up in hell. We don't let it take us to hell. Can you see where the content of this teaching would be offensive? Can you see where the authority behind this? Because again, it's not up for debate. It's not, well, what is it that you're holding on to? Let's talk about and see if that's okay. It's not that. It's, if it's there, do this or else you go to hell. Now, these are just some in the Gospel of Mark. Go ahead and turn back to Mark 6. We're going to be. This doesn't even take into consideration things like turn the other cheek or bless those who curse you or make disciples of all nations. Jesus taught these hard teachings and expected everyone, particularly those who devoted their lives to Him, who called His disciples, who had been saved by Him, they were supposed to obey them. In fact, Jesus often defined following Him as doing these things. And so if we're not willing to do these things, then we're not following Jesus. And if I'm not following Jesus because of something He said that I don't like, Well, then I have become offended at his words. And the reality is he is not welcome in my life. It's the same at the church level. There are things God's word says that we as a church won't do. We as a church are not following Jesus. And we are offended at his words. And he's not welcome among us. And if Jesus is not welcome among us, then we will miss out on what Jesus can do in us and through us and for us. So Jesus is not welcome when we diminish His deity. Jesus is not welcome when we're offended by His words. And then finally, Jesus is not welcome when we are offended by His works. We see in verse 2 that Jesus also did works and they talk about those. Right? And such miracles performed at his hands, given what we're told in verse five about him doing not many mighty works, but but some could be that what they're offended by are the mighty works he's done in other places. He's raised people from the dead. He has cast out demons, legions of demons. Perhaps it is these works as well where he's healing people. They've heard about the mighty works that he's done. They're seeing some mighty works that he's done and And the fact that Jesus is doing them offends them. The works of Jesus have the potential to offend people today as well. There are many works we could talk about, but the one I want to talk about today, the only one, is the work of salvation. You'd think people wouldn't be offended at Jesus' work of salvation, but but we would be wrong. Think about the story of, of Levi, Matthew, when he was saved. He was a tax collector. Now remember, tax collectors were despised by the people 
of the day. Jesus goes to this tax collector and says, come and you follow me. And he does. He gets up, he leaves the receipt of custom, and he follows Jesus. But, but after he meets Jesus and he realizes who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, Matthew's desire is for his friends to also meet Jesus. So he does what he could do. He has a party. And he invites Jesus, but he also invites his friends. Now, because Matthew or Levi was a tax collector, he didn't have like reputable friends. His friends were other despised tax collectors. His friends were prostitutes. His friends were people that went to prostitutes on a regular basis. His friends were people that had sinned so much, the religious people, the good people, said they could not be saved. God was done with them. These are the only people Matthew knows. So he invites them to his house and he invites Jesus to come. Not just to hang out with sinners, as is often said in like Facebook memes and things. Oh, Jesus hung out with sinners. He wouldn't be in churches. That's dumb, but I don't have time to get into why that's dumb and how dumb it is. Jesus went to that gathering of sinners not to hang out with sinners. He went to that gathering of sinners to save souls and redeem people from the enemy's hand. But the religious leaders didn't like that. Who did Jesus think he was? Did he not know what kind of people these were? He, he's in the same room, sitting down and, and eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. Now, again, we may not think much about it, but in those days, to sit with someone in their home and to eat a meal with them, it conveyed a sense of acceptance. To sit down with a prostitute was to accept her as a human, not, not to accept the sin. But he accepted her humanity. The fact she was made in the image of God. Someone God loved and wanted to redeem and have a relationship with. And he did that with prostitutes and with tax collectors and with people who frequented prostitutes who were probably much worse than that. And, and the people, the, the good people said, who dare, how dare you do something like that? They were offended that Jesus would offer salvation to those people. Jesus was not welcome among the religious leaders. Think about the man possessed with legions of demons. When Jesus arrives, the man is naked, violent, crazy, and filled with demons. Jesus comes along, delivers the guy. The guy gets dressed. He's in his right mind. And when the people of the nearby village come, how do they respond? Jesus, you're awesome. That is amazing. We have had problems with this guy for a long time. Gosh, we are so thankful that you've done this. No, they didn't. They said... Won't you scoot on out of here now? Jesus was not welcome among them. Same sort of thing happens in our day. Every disciple of Jesus and every evangelical church says they want Jesus to save the lost until Jesus begins to save the lost. I'll give you two examples. These are not made-up stories. These are not internet stories. These are real stories of people I personally know. A friend of mine went to a church to pastor. The church had been struggling for quite some time. Then it had a split. They got the short end of the split and were really struggling to, to keep going. They brought this guy in to revitalize the church, to reach out to their community, uh, and, and to, to see souls saved. They loved his evangelistic zeal until he began to reach out to people around the church. You see, the church, when it was built, was built in the nice neighborhood built in the part of town where the people were growing and the people there were the fancy people of the world. But the town had shifted and the fancy people had all moved away and lived in another part of town that was fancy 
and the part of town the church was in was now as close to being a slum as what that, that, that particular town has. And what this guy did was he began to reach out to the neighbors. Like, the church is here, its parking lot is here, and next to the church is a halfway house. He went to the halfway house and invited them all to come to church. The problem is the people in the church were still fancy people. Song leader was vice president of the local college. He's president of a different college now. The deacons were successful businessmen. The treasurer was a millionaire. And when he invited those people to his church, the fancy people didn't like it. I mean, they wouldn't have said they, they didn't want Jesus to save those people, just not here. Not in our pretty pews. Not among our fancy children. They wanted Jesus to save the lost, just not those lost. At least not in their church. Another friend of mine went to pastor a church in a similar situation. It had declined. He had a good reputation for revitalizing churches. He's a gifted soul winner. He's very good at bringing people to place of decision during his preaching. Good altar worker. And they loved all of that until he led a highway patrolman to Jesus and brought him to church. Trooper was, he was a black man. And that was a problem. They really didn't want those people in their church. Now, they, they would have sworn they weren't racist. But, they said, what if he brings his friends? And our church becomes a, a black church. But what if one of his Black kids wants to date my black child or my white child. No, that, that's just, that, that's not acceptable. They wanted Jesus to save the lost, just not those lost people, at least not in their church. So what about us as individuals? What about us as a church? Do we want Jesus to save the lost in our community and through our church? I'm sure we'd all say yes. But let me propose some what-if scenarios. What if Jesus saves someone out of the LBGTQ community and they start coming to church here? And, and like Matthew, Levi, they, they begin to bring their friends to church. Well, who would their friends be? It would be other people in the LBGTQ community. So how would we as a church, as individuals, how would we respond Multiple people who were transgendered or gay began to come to our church and, I mean, didn't get saved like the first time they came. They just kept coming, listening, hearing. And then if they did get saved, they brought more of those same kinds of people. Would we be okay with that? Would we rejoice at the work of salvation Jesus was doing or would we be offended at Jesus' work of salvation? Or what if it was a Muslim? What if Jesus saves a Muslim and he starts coming here? And then, like Matthew, he invites his friends who are also Muslims. And so, just multiple Muslims begin to come to our church on a Sunday morning. And they don't get saved right away because they've got to hear and evaluate and decide. But they did get saved. They brought more Muslims in. How would, how would you, how would I, how would we as a church respond? If a Muslim got saved and brought their Muslim friends to our church, 
Would we rejoice at Jesus' work of salvation or would we be offended by it? Or what if it was a person with ridiculously bad morals? I know a guy in town. I've prayed for Jesus to save him for years. He's nice enough to me, but I mean, just to be honest, he's, he's morally repugnant in the way he lives his day-to-day life. Now, if I said his name, you might know, but I'm not going to. So imagine your own morally repugnant friend. But what if Jesus saves this morally repugnant guy and he comes to church and he brings his morally repugnant friends to come to church? And I mean, they don't know how to act. They don't know how to talk. They ain't been in church ever. It takes them a while to get saved because they just come and listen and hear. But when they do, they bring more morally repugnant people. How, how, would, how would you respond? How would I respond? How would our church respond? Would we rejoice at Jesus' work of salvation, or would we be offended by it? Or, or what if Jesus begins to save people in our church and it changes the dynamic of the church? I mean, it, it doesn't feel the same when we gather together like it does now. I mean, new people always change, and the more new people there are, the more changes there will be. How are we going to respond when new people bring new things and new ideas and and change into our church? Are are we going to just want it to be our our four and no more? Be offended at Jesus' work of saving people? Or are we going to rejoice at Jesus' work of salvation? God's word is clear. Jesus wants to save all those kinds of people and more. That's the point of the cross. This is part of the work He does. This is what He came to make possible. And if Jesus starts saving those people in our church, how will we respond? Will we embrace it and rejoice in it? Or will we be offended by it? And let's be real clear. If we're offended by it, it's because Jesus is not welcome here. It is because Jesus is not welcome among us. And if Jesus is not welcome among us, then we will miss out on what Jesus can do in us and through us and for us. So is Jesus welcome in your life? Is Jesus welcome in my life? Have we embraced, fully embraced the deity of Jesus with all of the authority that gives him. The authority to say what he wants to say and expect it be obeyed without question, without waffling. Just we do it because Jesus said it. Have we embraced the deity of Jesus so that he has the authority to save whoever he wants to save, send them to our church and we will rejoice in what Jesus is doing in us and through us and among us. I believe, let me say, I want to, this has been a challenging message, but the subtle subtext of this message has not been we're terrible people and Jesus is not welcome among us. I do not believe any of those things are true about our church. Truly, I believe any of those people were to come to our church, I believe they would be welcomed. 
I believe individuals would welcome them. I believe our church would welcome them. But this is what the text was talking about, and so that's what I had to deal with. If in your heart right now you know Jesus is not welcome because you don't like something He said, you're offended at His words, or you would be offended if He began to save certain people and kinds of people and bring them to our church... And friend, your need today is to repent of your sins. Believe in Jesus and let Him save you. Your heart is not right if you have not fully embraced the deity of Jesus. Your heart is not right if you are offended at the words of Jesus. Your heart is not right if you are offended at the work of Jesus in saving whoever He will. You must repent. If you are offended... Jesus is not welcome in your life and you think He should not be welcome in our church in these ways, please understand me. You are not right. You are not the one who's right and the God's Word is wrong. You are not the one who's right and what this says is wrong. You are wrong. You are eternally wrong. You are damnably wrong. And you must repent of your wrong thinking and your wrong views and your wrong offense. For we have no right to be offended at anything Jesus has said. We have no right to be offended at anything Jesus has done. For He is God in the flesh who died for our sins, rose on the third day, and offers salvation to all who will believe. He has all authority, absolute authority, and it does not waver, it does not let up, and He does not make exceptions for you, and He does not make exceptions for me. So if we are out of step with what God's Word has said, we must get right. God's Word will not change. Jesus will not alter Himself. What He has said is the way it will be. So the question is, how are you and I, how are we going to respond to the message today? And I would say there's two ways primarily. One, if we know Jesus is not welcome because we have diminished his deity, we're offended at his words or we would be offended at his works. We must spend this time in repentance, confession, pleading for forgiveness, pleading for Him to change our hearts, take out our heart of stone and give us a heart of flesh. And if we are, Jesus is welcome, then we should pray. and We should cry out and tell Him He is welcome in our life. Tell Him He is welcome in our church and beg Him to save whoever He will, save Guyman for Christ and whatever that means for our church to do what He will. To save the lost, restore the prodigal, heal broken hearts, set captives free, sanctify saints, and raise the spiritually dead to new life in Christ. Let's stand.